Hello, and welcome to Relative Pitch. We appreciate you tuning into our podcast. Our mission is to give you young musicians' perspectives on hot topics in the music world. By sharing our thoughts and opinions, we hope to help with bringing positive change and diversification to the music world. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Relative Pitch, Episode 7, Wagnerisms One Night. We are so excited for the warm reception we are receiving from our podcast, and we would love for you to join in um, on all of our social medias, which will be linked down below. Um, for this chapter, it revolves a lot around Wagner in America and his opera Lohengrin, which is honestly one of my favorite operas. Um, so basically, this opera kind of tells the story of a shining knight that arrives um, on a swan-driven boat to rescue a damsel in distress, Elsa's, who must uh, promise never to ask for his true identity. After being rescued, she breaks her promise and the knight departs, never to be seen again. So it has a lot of drama. I don't know about y'all, but if a person ever says, don't ask me my identity, I'm going to ask you your identity because you might be the killer in the house. Um, but of course, it gives that drama. It gives me very uh, modern day soap opera type of feels. So uh, what do y'all think about, you know, Lohengrin? Um, you know, I love it because Lohengrin is basically my name, Lauren Green. So thank you, Wagner. He already knew I was going to be great back in the day. <laughs> but no, seriously, like Lohengrin, I think I didn't even know what it was. But in high school, I played Elsa's Procession to the Cathedral, which I believe on the score or at least on the parts it says that it's from Lohengrin. Did I look at the time? Probably not. But it was such a beautiful piece. And it's something that I've had the pleasure of playing actually twice. It would have been three if we got to do Anthony's conducting recital, but it'll happen someday. It'll happen. Um, but it's such a, it's a gorgeous piece. And I think we're going to actually play a little bit of it later for you guys. But that was my first ever introduction to Low and Grid. And then one night me and Anthony randomly wanted to see what the setting was to Elsa's because we had, but I think we all at some point have played um, Elsa's. And so it was a situation where we're like, oh, we want to kind of see what the setting to this and like what is actually happening. Like we, of course, procession to the cathedral was like, well, there's a wedding, obviously. So what does that look like? It's very dramatic. Like Anthony said, it's like really young and the restless times Wagner, basically. And so that was, I mean, it's amazing. It's really long, all, like all Wagner operas. But if you like drama, go check it out. I think what is it Met On Demand has all of these yeah, all of these operas. On YouTube, like honestly, on YouTube and uh, Lohengrin opera, and it will come up. I mean, uh, it was funny because I was getting ready for my recital, and Lauren was over at our house. I think Michael was like doing recordings and stuff, um, but we just kind of looked it up, and it was like, oh, let's just see like how else is supposed to go, because you know, as a conductor, you have to do your background research to see like what comes before, what comes after. So we're literally just sitting there watching and then something happens at the end and end up me and Lauren finished watching this whole, like we were sitting there watching for like another hour, just like, what is happening? What's going on? Luckily this one had subtitles so we could like read what's going on. And that's just how captivating it was. Like it really just kept you in. I think Michael walked in while we were watching it and he started trying to talk to us, but we were like, 
shut up. Like we're trying to look at what's going on right now because that's how really Wagner writes a lot of his things from the ring cycle all the way up to uh, Lohengrin and other things as well, where you're always sitting on the edge of your seat, trying to know what's about to go on. Um, and so let me tell you, this is it. Please go watch it. It will definitely keep you on your toes. Definitely that. Um, and I think I'm going to show you just a little bit of it. Um, I think Michael had oh, something Michael. before we. Uh... Real quick, if you do have the funds, please go get Med Opera Demand. Support the arts, especially in times like now. Like, I know it's like pretty much a Netflix subscription. Um, so, you know, do with that what you will. But there's a lot of fantabulous operas on there. I watch about two a week. If you want to chat about it, give me an email, a DM, something. Love my good operas. And yeah, support the arts. Truly. Um, so this is um, what I'm about to show is uh, literally Elsa's procession to the cathedral, which uh, if anyone has been listening for the past seven episodes is one of my favorite pieces in the world. Um, this is towards the end where Elsa's finally proceeds. Um, and then something happens at the end. So, which is very, which kept me and Lauren on our toes. So let me go ahead and share this really quickly. Um, yeah. As you can see, the procession did not end very well, um, in which that is just Wagner keeping you on your toes. Here is a big, fantastic, I mean, bombastic song. I think that's what always kind of uh, really sparks my ear every time I hear Elsa's and I still get goosebumps every time. It's because how grand it is, especially with the trombones coming in, it's just like, what is going on? And then immediately, here comes a dramatic soprano, like, uh, I've been following you, stop this right now. And I would never forget, me and Lauren is just looking like, what in the world is going on? Because if you go and listen to the more concert setting of this, it ends very, um, like a grant, like finally you've reached the altar. But in the opera, it does not happen like that. And I think, it was good for me to see that because honestly, if I did not go do my research 
on this, I would have thought Elsa procession ended the way it ended in the opera, which is completely different. Um, so it was very good. And this goes for anybody, if you're a teacher or whatever, do your research because especially when it comes from like an opera or something like that, you never know what might happen in the opera. It's completely different from what's in there. Um, so definitely, but I love it, love it, love it. Michael? All I know is hashtag girl in red. That's my girl. She, she interrupted that wedding in fashion. I yeah. think we should hashtag a wicked witch of the red wicked for sure. Witch. Let's do it. Let's do it. That'll be <laughs> one of our hashtags. Because I mean, she really did kind of take the scene. Like she was like, boom, I'm here. And a little bit backstory about her. Um, she is um, uh, the ruler's sister or uh, not ruler's sister, ruler's uh, wife that um, Elsa's newly betrothed or, or fiance, um, he came in um, and said, I'm taking over this kingdom um, and I'm taking Elsa as a prize. We're in love, we're gonna get married. So he kind of took over uh, the past king and the lady that you saw was his wife. Um, and a little bit more backstory about Lundgren, um, this guy, he comes in and say, you have to love me for me. Don't ask me anything about it. Don't ask me who I am, who I work for, why I'm here, just know it. And um, basically she does not ask until way after, it was probably towards the, the middle to end of the opera. And honestly, she finds out his name is Lohengrin and he's actually a protector of the Holy Grail. So he has to go back to protect because she has now broke the little spell that he cast and everything. So it's very um, young and the restless, like how can you be dead for 10 years and then somehow come out of a coma? The world may never know. But that's exactly where a lot of soap operas come take uh, advantage of is like using that. Um, and going to the book, really Wagner and um, a lot of people use Wagner-esque things. So like for soap operas, this is nothing but a big soap opera. Um, here comes the bride. Guess what? It comes from Wagner and everything that we see today really kind of gets attributed back to Wagner. Lauren? Yeah, I was, I was just about to mention the fact that a lot of people have been having, you know, the, this bridal chorus in their weddings for, I mean, We'll, and we'll talk about how far back this has gone. Um, but it's funny because no, oh, they probably don't know. You probably don't know. It's just probably the, oh, here comes the bride. That's how we kind of all know it. Um, and it's really interesting because in the book, Alex Ross mentions the fact that it's kind of a prelude to a catastrophe of what happened. And so it's funny that everyone, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know what you're putting in your wedding? Um, no, but seriously, do your research. <clears throat> <laughs> Hashtag divorce rates. Oh, Jesus. So we. Right. They don't do their research. You don't know. And now it just is all making sense in my head. That because, because they play Here Comes the Bride, that leads to divorce rates. Exactly. And the uh, know your stuff, like people. Our, look, like our now previous president, fake news. Well, uh, when people play Pachelbel's Canon, I see long marriages. So you choose. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I will play uh, Here Comes the Bride, in which I, um, it is different. It is a little different, but this is where it truly comes from, which is from the same opera, and it's about uh, 30 to 45 minutes after Elsa's procession to the cathedral. So let's take a listen to that. Okay. Tell me if you can hear it. say is I would love to be the triangle player okay I have two notes ting ting that's it and I just got paid thousands of dollars for that would love it yeah no you know what the conductor didn't do he should he should have connected that little trail a little bit more real and we're here but honestly I prefer that version than have the versions I I hear nowadays um, I, yeah, I was just going to reference that. There are so many funny YouTube videos of the worst versions <laughs> of that song. And they make me cry, laugh, because it's so bad. There's one in particular that just, I sob. Like, please, y'all, shout out to all my non-musician friends who you just, you, you listen, you don't know. Please talk to your musician friends and ask, what, how should I make sure the people who I ask to play my weddings or any whatever are good people? So a lot of people say, oh, I specialize in these six instruments. They took one class and then maybe that one instrument that is not specializing in it. And then you will have situations like these YouTube videos that I cry laughing at. Yeah. So yeah, just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah. Please consult the musician because I would hate to be at your wedding and then hear some very very bad stuff and i'm just looking at him like they're not setting up your 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 relationship your marriage very well like a wedding is supposed to be like nothing but good things because it's supposed to be prophesizing how your marriage is going to be and they're sitting up here messing up bum, 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 bum. like they're, they're really messing that up and i'm sorry like no one wants to hear pocketbells cannon or pachi balls. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so like I was saying earlier, this has been a tradition that's been around for quite a while. And actually, um, after you know the front introduction of Lohengrin in the book, uh, Alex Ross kind of talks about really Wagner's relationship with the British monarchy and specifically Queen Victoria, Princess Victoria at the time. And actually, I believe, was it Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's wedding where at the wedding reception uh they had a scene like an actual scene performed of Lohengrin yeah like that's that's wild like, and it kind of shows you how illustrious and like 
fancy and just crazy these like royal weddings where can you imagine a full production of like going on at the reception of your wedding like that's pretty cool um so it kind of shows the difference of how Wagner was seen at that point I will say at that point in in Britain um when he first got there and it kind of changed as he went um I believe later on Queen Victoria maybe even Princess Victoria learned more about kind of the the bad side of Wagner we you know we are of course we have to talk about with the good that comes too and it's kind of interesting to see the development of how these people see him and treat him and his music his art his influence once they kind of know what his beliefs are and that matters that absolutely does matter and it's the same thing to this day like even if you're an amazing artist if we if like the public finds out that you maybe have done something that's just really not great it's not like say oh i i just i'm a dog person i just don't care for cats not that but it's more like oh i hate this person because of things that they cannot change about themselves that is a very that's a big thing that's a very big thing um and we already know that Wagner in paris was already getting in trouble with things of that nature and so it was kind of it would follow him you know i feel like everywhere he went and that's it's kind of a part of it. If you want to be a person with opinions, some people, they're, we're going to find out about those opinions at some point, especially when you get to that high of a, you know, place in society. So. Yeah. Just to give some more reference, um, it was actually, in fact, 1840 that this was played, and it was Queen Victoria um, and Prince Albert. And from then till 2020, it is still being played. And later on, um, what I think Lauren was referencing to, um, it was around 1889, um, I think it was Princess Victoria, was quoted in public saying, "Ah, I didn't really mind his music or him in general. And then in private, she's like, his music is absolutely gorgeous. It's wonderful. But him and his person, just got to cut it. And I feel like that's, I think that's common when it comes to Wagner. It's like, don't like the person, but his music is absolutely sublime. Like, beautifully, beautiful storytelling. Um, I mean, just what you just heard with Elsa's, like, how can a person just write all of that? And mind you, he wrote, when, when we say operas, we mean like four or five hour operas. And you, the thing is from minute zero, 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 all the way until whatever, five, five hours later, all of that music is so methodically planned out. It's beautiful. It keeps you engaged. Um, so you cannot deny the beauty of his work, but you can deny his dealings. I will say that because Jesus bless him because he, he had some things and even Queen Victoria said like, um, we, you being anti-Semitite, all this stuff, and especially in London, because London was, you know, way more diverse than Germany was. Um, I mean, mind you, this is in the middle 19th, uh, 19th century. So like, when I say diverse, I mean, you know, small diversity, okay? But it was still way more diverse with uh, Jewish, um, English speaker, all these different things there. So of course, um, as the Queen of England, she had to say, uh, not here for it, not here for it. 
I think it was very responsible of, I was it, was it Prince? It was Princess Victoria, right? Let me make sure that it was her who, okay, okay. So I think it was really responsible of her to, even though she had personal feelings regarding the music of saying, oh, it's amazing music. She made sure, because anything you say as a monarch is political, you know? And it's kind of the same thing. I, I kind of um, see a parallelism with uh, social media and like celebrities this day, when you post something on your page and your platform, and you have all those followers, you're making a statement with whatever you say. Um, and it's different from someone who has 500 followers saying whatever they want to versus uh, someone who has 5 million. Like you, you're touching a wide, like range of people in the world. And a lot of them have more than that um, on social media. And so it was, it really shows that like when you have that place, when you're put that high in society, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, you have to really think about your, what you say, the things you like let off and all of those situations because it influences people and I mean, I'm not saying any names, but we see what influence can do, even if it's so incredible and just like has no evidence behind it whatsoever. It's just, it doesn't have to be factual, but people will follow you, unfortunately. Like that's just kind of what happens. And so <laughs> you have to be responsible. You have to be unselfish when you come to positions like that. But, you know, I'm so I'm just praising um, Miss Princess for doing her part in that. Oh, yeah. Can we, can, we, uh, can we just please, please, please advocate to name your child other than your name? I know I'm a junior, but like I have a junior title to my name. Princess and Queen Victoria, I'm going to need y'all to separate y'all selves because I can't be sitting out here on this podcast trying to sound smart and, and get both of y'all confused, okay? Name your children different names. Thank you. That's my PSA. Well, technically, they both were princesses at one point, and they both were queens, so we kind of don't lose. Um, but to get more reference, because I, I like to, if you're like me and you're listening, you want reference, right? So we're talking about how he was a part of, like, the grandeur. Wagner kind of came into fame around 1839, with Rienzi was one of his first big operas, followed by De Flinger der Hollander, which is the Flying Dutchman, in 1841. And his last opera, which was one of his best, was finished in 1882. So that's a long reign at the top. And he had a complete, he had uh, 13 complete albums, or albums, wow, modern. 13 complete operas with also a lot of unfinished works. So just put that in perspective, like 30 to 40 years hanging out with these people at the top and rising to fame. And when he died, he even got more famous and more stuff came out. So to like for, to be able to be with royalty of England at that point is even better than now, what we see today. So just to put that all into perspective, especially when we go into this next part um, about him and England some more. Yeah, so like um, we were referencing earlier, there was a, people found out 
you know, as they went about Wagner's um, opinions on certain people and composers. And at the time, I, I even believe, I don't know if it was Queen or Princess, uh, I think it was a, uh, the princess who liked Mendelssohn. Like she highly favored Mendelssohn as well. So whatever his, um, what was it, uh, Jew, um, Jews in music or Jewishness in music, that, that awful, awful pamphlet Jewish came out. In music. Yeah, that when that came out, basically him saying that that music is just all terrible because of the people who wrote it um, kind of came out. It changed people's views of him, rightfully so. Absolutely rightfully so. Um, there was one thing in particular, because, you know, as we know, not that, I mean, I guess Wagner wasn't a Nazi because that wasn't a thing back then, but if he, were, if he was, or if that was, he would have been one. And we know that Nazis didn't just, um, they didn't just hate Jews. It was like queer people. It was people of color. Anyone who was not an Aryan, basically a German, just straight, like white German. That is who, and so there's a, there's a quote on here talking about, and I'm trying to find in the book, um, I don't like highlighting yet in this book, it's too new, but I need to remember exactly where these things are. Oh, I have it here, yes, yes, yes. Um, where is it? In 1879, the North American Review published an essay attributed to, attributed to Wagner posting, oh wait, yes, the new world as an idol where the unconquerable, whoa, vigor and strength of the German spirit would find new life. Although the essay was ghostwritten by Hans von Zogen, the Bayreuther Blatter editor, it reflected Wagner's outlook, his disappointment in the New Reich, his belief in the indestructibility of holy German art, his concerns about racial intermixing and his fan fantasies of cultural rebirth. Let's just unpack that for a second. Cause you know, you know what that's basically saying. And this, this wasn't new. Um, this was not new. And it's, unfortunately, that's still happening today. Um, some people just don't want to see um, people of two different races together. Like, it's just something for them that bothers, as if, like, that takes away. It's the same thing with the whole gay marriage thing. It's like, what are, what are they doing to you that's bothering you about it? It's like, whatever. We're, this is all political. Literally, politics is in this. So it's going to happen. Get over it. <laughs> so basically, um, it just kind of hit every time. There's just always one more thing that pops out at me that I'm kind of like, really? Like, I forget. So, or like, I don't forget. We never, of course, like as Black people, as all minorities of some sort in America, we, we never forget that there are people like this in the world. Um, but it just kind of shows you how nasty at heart people can be and then still produce something as beautiful as Elsa's. It's conflicting. It's hard. Very hard. Um, and also, I think one way some musicologists, some musicians, some people in the world try to defend uh, Wagner's personal life is that he is a German nationalist. And let me let me let me try to think of how, but yes, he is a German nationalist. He does. He only wants what's best for Germany. Unfortunately, what the people who were German nationalists of that time wanted was the death of a certain another group of people. Therefore, 
I, I personally don't call that a nationalist. Um, I still call that racist and every single other thing. And I mean, unfortunately, if we want to cut down to today, there are people who are American nationalists who don't want anything else. But my question to that is who, who was truly here in America first? The I'm sorry, none of us minus the native people that were here should be the only ones who are truly a nationalist. So can you call Wagner a nationalist? Yes, he, he was proud of his history as a German. He was proud of his country, all of this. However, there becomes a point that we have to stop letting it go. Nationalists and being proud of your country and being a nationalist who wants to see an annihilation of an, a whole group of people that is also living in that nation, mind you, we need to start, we need to really cut that line very quickly. It's 2020. Let's cut that line right now. Yeah. And I mean, especially with, and we're like talking right now with him in England and him in France, like in France, at first they were like, yes, music, woo, reunited, reinvigorated, woo. And then they were like, eh, about him. Music's still great and by him. He moves to, or not moves to, but his music becomes popular in England. And it's the same ordeal all over again. And they like love it because Wagner's use of mythology really spoke to the imperialism mindset at the time. And if you have the book, page 112, the middle, uh, the middle paragraph is the middle. The, yes, like the it's the last full paragraph. I'm looking at it too. Yeah, like he's. I mean, the the best part to say, the fetishizing of Anglo-Saxon origins overlapped with the veneration of the Germanic. By the way, I had to look up what veneration meant. Um, Alex Ross is big brain. Yeah, big brain. I'm not big brain. It's pretty much just saying the ideal, like yes, overexcitement of. They were like, yes, woo, boom, and everything just connecting. I mean, even the next page over, um, I was reading Victorian listeners really vibed with uh, Wagner's secular cathedral space. So they could contemplate the idyllic, had to look that up, back, basically picturesque past and put it into the future yeah, and present. So like he was really connecting with these some of these people um, upper middle class, high class, about just all this um, psychological idealism type stuff within opera. And that just by itself, I know he's a bad person. I know these are bad thoughts. But to convey that with such a large group of people is amazing and tragic at the same time. I mean, well, like Anthony was kind of mentioning earlier that, you know, the national um, or nationalism has a connotation of supremacy behind it. And that is kind of what, that, that, not kind of, that is what Alex Ross is pointing out in this, that section that you were actually reading, I'm gonna read the front of it a little bit more, um, talking about, yeah, where presumptions of cultural superiority, the white man's burden, manifest destiny, rested on theories of racial supremacy that Wagner helped to promote. Okay? Yeah. Like that's, that's a, that, 
that that's all you need to know and it's true right all hitler wanted to do was say germany is amazing yeah. therefore everyone else is terrible and i'm going to kill you all so it, it's one thing that leads to another. It's never, because nationalism, unfortunately now, it, modern day, I mean, back then as well, but now it's kind of happening in modern day, leads to the feeling of superiority. And when you have superiors, you have inferiors. It is cause and effect, it's gonna happen. Um, and, you know, they were kind of mentioning a little bit later on, I know I'm jumping, we'll go back. I'm jumping a little bit, but, they were talking about how like Dvorak and I did, a, I've done a presentation of Dvorak, he would use Native American and especially African American spirituals with it, especially New World. Please listen to Dvorak, Symphony Number no. 9 from the New World. Beautiful, beautiful music. Um, but so basically we have composers who are using these, um, these spirituals and these songs from these groups who have, who aren't really represented in this beautiful Germanic um, wash of beauty because that's not what they consider and he even says it the idea of a national a national mythology based on the legacies of conquered murdered and enslaved peoples was not one for which Wagner provided a precedent that wasn't good to him he was like why would I want to see that no one wants to see that we want to see German heroes and uh, heroines who are killing things and singing and all this stuff you know it didn't fit it didn't fit the mold. It is not what people wanted to see. It's not what he wanted to write. And it, it just repeats itself. History repeats itself. Like mm -hmm. Wagner with his opera, not meaning to all the way, like 100%, maybe like 75. You know, we're going to give a little bit of credit. That's the majority, just, though. That's the majority. majority. Hey, hey, we're okay with majority, but like not Are like, we? no, we're not okay with it, but I'm just saying he, yes. Anyway. <laughs> Um, doing this, same Hitler, he's just screaming German nationalism and explodes. Nationalism, if not treated right, turns into extremism. Exactly. Like you can be proud of stuff, but don't let it turn into extremism. And that's what's like happening, especially with the Norse mythology. They looked up to it so much after this started coming out because that was mainly his like writing material. Yeah. They look up to these like amazing people, especially the Valkyries, like them amazing, powerful women. And they're like, oh, we're that now, let's do it. And that's where we get into this huge. And it does become a big debate. Cause I mean, I think about in American history when we learned about manifest destiny. So when you learn about it in history, it's a good thing. It's like, oh my gosh, we're expanding our way. But no one ever likes to say you're taking people's land your your people are already here you're not you're not mani you're not manifesting anything this is not your destiny this is already somebody's thing and um i think wagner gave a voice to like we we're the superior race and we this is our destiny we deserve this and it really like that whole um 1800s i think that's how you can sum up the 19th century is that where uh uh cultural cultural superiority really was a big thing we see it with um taking the land we see it with um the white man's burden with the filipinos and taking everything like that the spanish-american war uh all of these we see that there is a group of people who believe 
from the get-go, God has said, we belong here. This, all of this is ours. And unfortunately, to this very day, people still think that way. I think, yeah, I think it's very irresponsible. And the fact that it kind of makes me sick if you think about it, us growing up and learning history, we didn't think anything of, we never were like, oh, well, why did, why did you come take their lands? It was totally, well, it was owed to us. God put it in our destiny that uh, America would be founded. And this is what we, yeah, we create manifest destiny. Matter is, you didn't just make up a country Right. Like you didn't just make up a country. And so that it, it's so irresponsible. The education reform in America, it needs to have, there needs to be an education reform because you can't teach kids stuff like that. You can't move their, you're, you're rewriting history. That is rewriting history. And you know what? This episode is going to be released almost Thanksgiving. Let's talk about Thanksgiving. Let's talk about how Thanksgiving is supposed to be when you're learning in elementary school. It's about all the settlers and the Native Americans, they all, you know, came together and had a meal. In reality, it was more of you have now put the Natives in um, a slave, as slaves and you were now taking their stuff all of this, but we're supposed to be giving thanks. We're supposed to be like, oh, this is this is a, a peaceful thing. You just took their land. You just killed. You just raped. You literally just did this to a whole group of people, but we're sitting here supposed to be enjoying this. This is what we're taught. And this goes back, all of this goes back to, I think, the worldview of how it was back then. Yeah, and I just want to say that there are people and there are people who think that educating their children um, is could hurt them. And what I mean by that is they think by saying, "Oh, so what really happened is that the, uh, Europeans came over and slaughtered a bunch of natives and then stole their land, stole their um, their goods, and basically pushed them away and pushed them into crowded like crowded areas." That they're like, "Well, we're, it makes it feel like we're just telling them." that we're terrible. I'm like, you're not them, okay? We're, it's 2020. So when we're talking about slavery and I mean, segregation to a certain point, because some of y'all's grandparents were still alive, I will say that. Um, but as for slavery and things that go back all the way, yeah, to manifest destiny, there is nothing wrong with educating your children and saying there were things that happened that shouldn't have, but they did. And all we can do now is try to help the people who were taken advantage of at that point. There is nothing, because then you're teaching your kids, oh, wow. So things happen that are bad. And, but me, if I can help change it and make it better for other people, then why wouldn't I do that? It's empathy. It's just, it's the basics that if people, I don't think they give their kids enough credit. I love my students. I love talking to my students about things and knowing their opinions and working with kids because they see and hear more than you think they do. And I know educators out there, y'all are like, mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. And I love it when we had teachers and professors who were real with us and who were like, I'm not gonna sugarcoat anything that I tell you. And I think going to college and having, especially in history and all in government, all of that, having professors who were like, I'm not biased. I'm gonna say it how it was, mm -hmm. truly. And not, because those most of the history books out there are biased. 
Right. They're not factual. And they, they are overglazed. And uh, not going to get too far in this. The, some of the history books, uh, um, how can I say this in a very middle way? A lot of the history books are written in a very racist tone. And when I say that, I'm not saying that they are racist. What I'm saying is that it is written from a perspective of the person who is standing over rather than looking at from both sides and seeing it how it is, i.e. learning that Manifest Destiny was great for everyone involved, learning that Thanksgiving was wonderful for everyone involved, learning that segregation was bad. However, it still had a good thing to it. I'm sorry, but having a, a whole human being chained up doing work from day daylight to when day is gone i don't there is nothing in the world that that is okay so the book itself is written in a very racist tone I will say I've had some teachers who say this book is a load of crap. This is actually what happened. And those teachers deserve great rewards because they are telling it how it actually is and not just letting this rhetoric go on and go on. And let me tie this back to Wagner is that we have to stop letting this rhetoric of that Wagner was a great person. We should not talk about him, everything. We need to stop this rhetoric. Um, I was actually having a conversation with, um, I was telling my kids um, in my music appreciation class, funny, because uh, we're talking about romantic composers. And I was telling my kids about Wagner and we were taking notes and I said, he's very controversial. And I put out why he's controversial. And I said, so do you think we should continue to play his music? And a lot of my kids said, um, it's not about playing his music, it's about knowing the history and making sure it doesn't happen again. The music, they literally was like, the music is fine. The, the, like the music, however, we need to know his, his past, his history, and to know not to repeat that, especially how we look at composers now. Um, there was a couple composers about a year ago who we found out about um, that person was taking music from other regions and monopolizing off of that. That is not okay anymore. Maybe with Rimsky Korsakov, with Scheherazade and, you know, exoticism, all that, that was back then. But now, no, I'm sorry, that, that we cannot let that keep going where you are stealing from other people's cultures and then say, oh, this is my music. Let me get my check. I'm sorry, that's not how we are doing in the 21st century music. And it all really starts with not putting these people on such a high level. Like Wagner put his pants on just like you. He trained just like everybody. He just trained harder and trained smarter. That's just what happens. Like I, I'm about to go into this Wagner thing, but something I've been a really hard big believer in recently there is no such thing as uh child prodigies they just practice more when they were younger that is it they just practice more that's and also they may have had resources and a situation been in a situation where they were able i know i know kids who started off playing 
at six, seven years old and they had parents who were in the Met in Chicago. You don't think you're going to be great if you have, anyway. So, and this leads me into Wagner among the pre-Raphaelites. So Wagner had this London festival and it was after the failure that happened in Beirut because it wasn't as grandiose as he wanted right off the bat, but it caught the attention of the right people. So in 1877, there was this grand affair consisting of eight concerts in the Royal Albert Hall. I don't know how y'all know how big the Royal Albert Hall is, but it's a big deal in the music community. Like it is fabulous. And I call this like now he's doing stuff in Paris, doing stuff in London, doing stuff everywhere. I'm calling this Wagner Warp Tour. It's everywhere, but it's not exactly 100% hitting everybody. It's like a good 70, 80, because he's hitting the certain right people, but it's also spreading this ideal. And people are spreading this idea of Wagner is just beyond man. And I mean, he was a big deal. I mean, royalty showed up. It was a huge success. Um, what helped him was the years leading up, they were performing full works of his in London. Like, um, I believe they performed, here it is, Lohengrin, The Flying Dutchman, and Tannhauser, three of his prominent operas. So they performed those rolling up and then the music festival. So, of course, it's going to be a bigger hit than just Beirut when it's just a one-time thing. So, but this is just tying into it. We're putting Wagner, a lot of people putting this on this high pedestal, like eight concerts in the Royal Albert Hall. Do you really need all that? You know what I mean? Like at the time, do you really need all that? Maybe it's a tribute 3,000 years later. You know what I mean? But like at the time, this is what's happening. It's just like, we cannot continue this even into today. History repeats itself, y'all. Yeah, I agree with that. Kind of before we started this, I was, you know, talking to them and I was saying, you know, what I really hate about this, like not the reading, but just the influence that it seemed like the over influence, the overindulgence that people had with Wagner. I get, you know, they're, you know, they're fan clubs, they're fangirls to this day go on Twitter. You have all the stands of artists and everything. Um, But those people get really annoying be a lot of the time because they're just so it's like okay this they're just a human like michael said they still put their pants on like one leg at a time they have to eat to survive they have to have water to survive they have to sleep to survive um they may have things offered to them that you know at the we, we don't but they are still human like we are still genetically the same and so my you know and i think um, anthony's going to talk more about like all the Wagner's hand outside of music in the art and cultural world later on but the fact that there were so many like poets and writers and all these people who were just like actually just like oh my gosh this is he's God like I feel like they put him to that level and that always just really sickens me because like I said you are just a human you could be an amazing genius of course like when certain people certain heroes who have contributed so much to the world have passed away we honor them because we feel like you have given so much to us. Like we want to at least, even though it's more for the mourning process of us collectively, because obviously if they're gone passed away, there's nothing we can do about that. But that is very different than holding this person up of like, 
you are a messiah. And that is what I don't like because with nationalism and all this overindulgence and everything, superiority comes this where like, oh, Wagner is here, Mendelssohn eh, is down there. Are you kidding? Go listen to A Midsummer's Night's Dream and tell me that's eh, anyway. Um, I, they will both tell you, like, I, I, I hate when somebody is put on a pedestal or something, anything like I, there are movies that to this day I have still not watched because I hated the fandom around it because everyone talked about it so freaking much that I'm just like, I'm pretty sure it's not even that really good. I'm pretty sure. And if it is, I'm not even, I'm not even going to say it is because it is just that much. And Wagner definitely has his fangirls. He does. He, he has his fangirls. And I, that, that's just not the thing, but Wagner, uh, when he was alive, he had fangirls. Um, some of the people were architects, American architects um, that created, uh, helped create Chicago. Uh, I think it is later in this where um, you see that some of the buildings that are in Chicago to this day were built having Wagner in mind. Literally, Wagner had um, an opera house specifically built in Chicago. I don't think it's still up to this day, um, but built for his opera um, because they were like, the Met, we want to get away from the New York scene, so we want to go to Chicago. So they built this big elaborate opera house for him. Um, and, it, and it just it alludes to how big he was and how many people really kind of put him on that pedestal. Um, uh, what I do, what I will say is that in America, or in, really in English speaking countries, uh, there was a person that really kind of helped him get to the whole grand dom type of thing by the name of George Eliot, which is actually, um, a pen name for a lady named Mary Ann Evans. Um, she was one of the first critics to take Wagner seriously. Um, so she wrote many things about Wagner um, in English and saying like how good his things are. Um, Elliot did endorse Wagner's progressive ideas, but the music itself gives her trouble, which is very interesting because some people have it flipped upside down. And um, one thing that she says is the whistling of the wind through the keyholes of a cathedral, which has a dreamy charm for a little while, but by and by you long for a sound even of a street organ to rush in and break the monotony. So I think she was really kind of alluding to that Wagner music really had kind of the same things going on in which uh, she refers to a metaphor of saying the tadpole is limited to a tap hole pleasures. And so in our state of development, we are swayed by melody. So a tap hole is limited to tap hole pleasures. So it's like, you are only who you are. And so the things that you find pleasurable are, are things that are attainable for you. And that's really kind of how Wagner's music was and especially kind of uh, see why America loved Wagner's music because during this time America was all about let's go you know manifest destiny let's the frontier lore you know searching for gold the big gold rush so America of course took on 
Wagner-esque things because it was kind of their theme song for what they were going through at that time. So Wagner really started to become a household name during this period because again, it was attainable for Americans of that time. And I mean, that uh, tadpole, what's the quote again? Say the quote one more time. Yeah, uh, let me get back to it. Let me get it back to it. Uh, what is it? Oh, here we go. Uh, the tadpole is limited to tadpole pleasures. And so in our state of development, we are swayed by melody. And I mean, I mean, she's, she's right. I, I remember reading part of it. Well, of course I read it. Um, she was like her, his music kind of bothered her because she's so used to this classical mold and he is only breaking it, not just breaking it and moving forward. He is only breaking it with the over, like, I love chromaticism. He uses it so well and he like stretches everything out and then there becomes a melody, but is it really a melody? And that's where I can feel like with her, she's like, oh, I see what you're doing, but I need me a nice, like, like Haydn. He was such a melody person and wrote simple songs. And yeah. it was just good songs. And when you're listening to five-hour operas, sometimes you, maybe once in a while, you want to be able to hum the key and, you know, yeah. hum along, like, like Queen of the Night. Everybody can hum that. Yeah. But, like, try to hum along with Tristan and Isolde. I will wait. Mind you, she the reason why she felt that is because she was classically trained. She was a classically trained pianist that trained with works of Mozart and Haydn and things. So it was very, you know, you know, very simple-esque. And then here's Wagner with breaking a lot of those simple-esque rules. And here we are with these big, boisterous type of things. So th that's probably why she felt that type of way. I mean, it kind of goes back to the whole decadence thing with Wagner. It's just an, it's always comes back to just an overindulgence and the whole why it's like, instead of thinking light motifs, it's just an endless stream of melody. And I get what she's, because it's like too much of a good thing. Have you ever had like a dessert and you're like, oh, I'm going to eat all of this. And then you're like 30 or you're about 65% uh, of the way through it. And you're like, oh my gosh, if I continue eating this, I might puke. And it's like, it's really good, but too much of it every now and then, like if you want to have some sweet, you need a little bit of savory, like a nice charcuterie board. You have the crackers, the cheese, the salami, all the nice meats, the jam, the fruit and all that. You just need a nice array. And Wagner's just like, no, here's this one thing. Here's yeah. this one thing and you have to take it. That's it. And which is why I can see after listening to, or playing, listening to Mozart and Haydn, you're like, the entire time you feel like someone's just like, Melody, melody, melody. Like, melody. Down, push you. Just like pushing down. down. And yes. I mean, yes. Like I will be the first to say, love it. Love the way he changed it. I will listen to it. Like I, but I have to be in a mood to listen to it. And that's how you know sometimes he overdid things. But she did gain some stuff for him. And she saw how Wagner really developed the operatic literature as a organic whole like everything like mm -hmm. opera was a thing before Wagner of course like Mozart had some great ones love Mozart's operas don't really like his other stuff I'm just gonna be saying that um but like those were great operas and even before Mozart and all this other stuff but Wagner did something special to make everything just feel organic 
everything is like it is there. You cannot take it out. Like if you take it out, people are gonna be like, and where are we going from here? You know what I mean? Like if you took out that 40 minute duet, first of all, who's gonna come to your recital or performance? Second of all, it's not gonna make any amount of sense. Please sing a 40 minute duet on a recital and tell me how many people stay awake. Within the opera, you have a better chance. I mean, that'll be interesting. Like, I'll be like, go for it. I mean, what, what, what? No? Okay, never mind. No. I'm leaving the recital. I'm like, I, I, honest. <laughs> like, I'm leaving. Church finger. Church finger. I, uh, one finger, excuse me. And I won't even put my head down. I'm just walk out. <laughs> No, because so you gotta put your white usher glove on first and yeah. do it. The white usher glove. <laughs> like I just know, um, but I will say like, I think each country because we've now talked about um, Wagner in America, Wagner in France, Wagner in Germany, Wagner in Britain. Each country saw Wagner through like self lenses. So, like the French saw. Wagner as like a torch, a torchbearer for modernism. Like he was modern-esque. Uh, in Britain, they saw Wagner as like the messenger of uh, like being King Arthur, which, it, uh, or yeah, King Arthur, which if you know the whole sword coming from uh, the, the, the rock, the rock, the rock. Mm -hmm. so very heroic. So Britain really, really saw Wagner as like that person, like a descendant of that, because a lot of his thing was very heroic. And America saw Wagner more of like manifest destiny, frontier lore, you know, going out being, you know, uh, what were the two, the two guys that with Sacagawea? Is that, is that Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, that's who I'm thinking of. Hashtag history. History, history. Um, like th that's what, America saw Wagner as. So really you get to see uh, the world will look at Wagner in so many different facets, but it also gets credited to him because that a lot of his stuff can be fit, you know, into all these different things. Cause his music really does, it's very, um, it's developed. It's not one level. It definitely has some meaty things. It's like, you eating a, a birthday cake. You have the the layer of icing, but under the icing, you have a good old- I think we're just hungry. I think we're just hungry. Yeah. I talked about desserts. Now you're talking about cake. Yeah. I said, I said charcuterie. Anthony has wrong food. It's like eating a beef Wellington. All the different oh. layers, all the nasty. different textures. Nasty, and let's change the food. Go to lasagna or something like that. I mean, we can go to a cake, but not birthday cake is so plain. That's hiding. He was Who's like birthday eight, cake. Are you eating? Right. Who's birthday, birthday cake? Are you eating? eating one type of cake? Yes. So he was like a seven layer chocolate cake fr from death. You know what I mean? Like those. That was him. It's overindulgence. A birthday cake is plain simple. Mozart, Haydn, stuff. He well, went overboard. I love a good birthday cake. So, well, well, you know what? Let's let's bring Shrek into this. He's an onion. There's layers the onion. Boom. onion. Boom. I didn't like. I, I don't like onions. So let's change it to another I, thing. Girl, you haven't eaten <laughs> the right onions. You should try my chicken noodle soup I just handmade. Onions are great. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, what was funny? Kind of the nearing the end of the chapter. Um, this is something I didn't even know, but Wagner actually wanted to be in America. 
Um, and that's kind of weird, or I guess not weird, but I would think that he would be like, no, I must, I must die in Germany, in Germany, Germany, Germany. But actually, I guess he saw himself more <laughs> in, um, in what America was doing at the time. And that makes absolute sense to me. Like we've been talking about all this manifest destiny and hero, like, heroism and yeah, yeehaw, cowboys, riding, all this stuff like that's going on over there. Like, I guess it makes sense that he's like, this is a perfect grounds for soap operas. Dr drama, death, um, dr really dramatic characters, would you say? And they already idolized him. And they already idolized him, absolutely. Yeah, complete, uh, I think when they, when they get a promotion, but it's a lateral move, it would have been a lateral and then horizontal. Yeah. I mean. Vertical. Lateral, then vertical move. Once he got there, he was going to go up in like the hierarchy of america that he wasn't already in and like was it cosima his wife that's his that's yeah, his cosima. she wrote in her diary she said uh-uh she said why america america he knew she was like and, and it never happened he just never pulled the trigger you know once you get architects to kind of develop buildings after you you kind of made it i mean um, the guys who made a lot of the Chicago, like when they died, literally it says, um, when uh, Burnham died in 1912, the Chicago Orchestra responded to the news by playing Siegfried's funeral music. The same was for um, Seidel as well when New York played uh, Siegfried's funeral music. So you have these uh, uh, architects who were building New York and Chicago and Boston their love for Wagner is really what is like building these buildings. And one of the buildings uh, that is mentioned in the book is still in Chicago. It's very, it doesn't look Wagner-esque to me, but it definitely was uh, the conception of it all was definitely more Wagner. Um, and then when they built the, um, the opera house, Wagner is one of four figures portrayed in the medallions on either side of the proscenium. The others are being Haydn, um, who I can't pronounce that one, Demo, Demosthenes, and Shakespeare. Okay, so really, four big people um, that have something really big on the world. So um, he was very big, and also. We all, as Americans, all know Mark Twain, which Mark Twain was a, Lauren, that eye roll was atrocious. <laughs> that eye roll was, <laughs> um, Mark Twain, we've all read, you know, he wrote Huckleberry Finn, right? Huckleberry Finn and all those. He's famous in the South. Yeah, very famous in the South. And we learned about him and he was a, he loved Wagner as well. He had a very, in and out um, relationship with Wagner. He loved him. And then by the end, I don't think he really liked him. And there's a sentence in uh, this book where it was very, um, I would tell you to go read it for yourself. It's on page 155, first paragraph. Um, but he basically says that uh, he would rather see people in blackface, AKA minstrels, than watch uh, any of any operas, including Wagner's, um, which Alex Ross says, Twain appears unaware of the irony of posing a choice between Wagner's operas and homegrown racist entertainment. 
well. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, that, that tells you a little bit about the favorite Southern uh, writer. But it's also funny because uh, Wagner was also like Wagner racism, Mark Twain racism, but they don't like each other. Like that, that's real kind of second level for me. Racism is racism at the end of the day. This is true. And to give just, uh, to hop back real quick, because I had to do this earlier, to give everybody context, the opera house that Anthony keeps talking about, it is not the Chicago Lyric Opera house that they play in now. It was the one that actually preceded it. So they left that one to go to a new one. But still, like if it preceded the Chicago, everybody knows the Chicago Lyric Opera. Like that's on period. Like if he, if that was built for him, in mind that's just like insane and that leads me like it's just like this overarching obsession that people have once they hear wagner and experience wagner either that be he pulled out an overture and put it on a concert which he rarely did i mean he did but he preferred his music to be performed in it in its entirety if he had the choice of like you listening to siegfried's funeral music just go listen to the opera please like you will understand it more and understand the like meaning behind it than just pulling it out and just this obsessive quality like how the i'm gonna go into this real quick um and this little subtitle called star spangled wagner first of all the subtitle star spangled wagner um kind of told us how wagner music got to america which was these uh this germania musical society who is obsessed with Germany. And their whole point was to get German music to inflame and stimulate the hearts of these politically free people, because we were free, we were democracy, um, and love for the fine art of music. And that's like, so they, their whole concept from leaving Germany to getting here was to only play German composers from Bach to Wagner, mainly like just like spreading the love of Germanic composers and making the free people love art. If that is not obsessive, I don't know what is besides Taylor Swift writing songs about guys that she breaks up with. I mean, kind of when they wrote, you know, poetry and all those writings and stuff about Wagner, that's kind of basically what they were doing. Even when they, like, didn't like him, like, the frenemies, like, Niche and all those people who were like, I, I love him, I hate him, I love him, I hate him. Still talking about him, though. So there's, like, a level, you don't hate him enough, <laughs> is all I'm going to say. You just don't hate him enough um, with some weak sauce, for sure. Um, but, yeah, it was interesting, like, the, that star-spangled Wagner was, I was like, what, what is this? Like, what, what are we about to get into here? Um, but his influence over American society and American music, did anyone, okay, John Philip Sousa, if you've ever heard of Sousa March, they're out there, there's so many, I'm sure, if you if you have children, they have a band concert, you probably have heard some Sousa March somewhere, Starting Strikes Forever, if I have my piccolo, I, you know, whip it out for y'all, but I don't, um, and so, Basically, it was really interesting because you would think that Americans, especially during this time where they were really trying to make an identity for themselves and be like, we are Americans. We're not, you know, just descendants from Europe, of Europeans. We are Americans. 
you would think that someone like John Philip Sousa, whose basically life was American marches, would try to Germ Germanize it. I don't even know. Like, you know, and he completely redid the Star Spangled, uh, uh, was it the Star Spangled Banner? He redid it with it being in the tone of, was it uh, Tannhauser? Tannhauser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing, before this, we tried looking that up, barely could find it. Once we listened to it, understood why it couldn't be found, really. I mean, we, it just, oh my God, just, um, it, just, it, really it wasn't it. I don't even think we all, like, marches aren't even our, like, thing as, like, a group. Michael, not us. One of the greatest musical things, and if, like, I muted him. If performed I, correctly, is amazing. I, I unmuted myself because I, I saw that. Marches is amazing, and y'all gonna give it its due respect. It deserves. Marches are some of the most famous ah. things in the world. Um, and Why they played so much, huh? Why they played so much and required? Because if you cannot play them, it shows. And that's on period. And I see that's also an out of date system that I, as a new music educator, will be definitely fighting for that in the future. Because to me, uh. Michael has left the chat. Not, not doing the slander. Well, I'm a slander because guess what? I am the teacher. So guess what? My kids, I'm sorry, marches. I never liked them when we had to do them. Um, I don't like conducting them. I don't like listening to them. My kids, uh, what is it for? Well, okay, regardless, this one was trash. That's all I'm going to say. Truly. So, so don't try, and <laughs> don't this try girl, to listen this to this one. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. Um, so maybe it's a good thing. It's like whenever we figured out that, that right before he died, he was about to try to do symphonies. I think God saved that. He just, he was like, nope, let's go ahead and bring it home. You know, yeah. home, like, just, just take him, just take him, Jesus, because we, we didn't need it. But that's what, that's kind of why it stopped where it did. Um, but yeah, it was just really interesting to see, because I think they even, he even mentioned how um, he had a little bit of influence, not with really like the political side of like American presidency, but, you know, I think, was it Roosevelt's daughter or someone, someone's daughter, a president's daughter who, had a wedding and I don't I'm not I can't remember exactly which song of his was played at it but um I I, I think that's a pretty big thing you know to at that time you know not use I don't know which which of Susan Marsh they would use for a wedding or something but um it was just interesting to see his influence in America as well and he had apparently never visited you know he was an international an internationally acclaimed composer um and it showed like it absolutely showed i will say it's probably mainly because he didn't come to the u.s because i think the the height of his fame we were kind of or we they were going through you know a big thing called the civil war so you know that between 1860 1865 that might have you know why he didn't bring his way on over here <laughs> um Mm hmm But I feel like if he did come to America, I don't know. I think he he would have been great in like the bigger cities, New York, Chicago. Boston. Well, he wanted to go to Minnesota. So I'm not I'm not saying anything. Shout out Minnesota, but that, that's just like uh 
who was it Schoenberg that like went to Los Angeles or something like why would you go to Los Angeles oh no it was Stravinsky why would you go to Los Angeles I mean Los Angeles is a big city but I think it was a uh, when he was doing his movie uh music yes it was career. Season, but also like just later like I'm I'm like past my prime so I'm living in LA girl or can man, you blame um, oh, but I, I figured out just real quick before I forget. It was actually, it was a Grover, it was Grover Cleveland's actual wedding that his wife uh, wanted to have Lohengrin um, on, dur at the White House lawn. It was played during their wedding. The bridal, yeah, it was, a, I believe it was a bridal course and Sousa's Marine Band played it. So I, I, I think that already shows you if he was there, if Wagner actually made it, mosey his way over to America, he would have been in in near the White House a lot, I, I believe, I truly. Mean, I would love for Sousa Band to play Elsa Procession to Cathedral at my wedding. So, I mean, I've always said this. I would love Elsa's Procession to be played at my wedding. I've always said it. And now I have, now I have gone on an official record to say it. That is what I want. And I hope they fake you out and play a march. I wish they would. I would stop the wedding right then and there, call it is, fire everyone that's there, start the wedding back over, and I will put on a recording from YouTube if I need to. But yeah, so the last thing um, in this chapter, honestly, it's literally the last small paragraph of this chapter that was very interesting. And I think it was, it was a point that Alex Ross tried to make to make you think about, you know, of course you're thinking throughout this entire book, because my God, but especially this is kind of like a reflection. It says, um, I'll read the entire paragraph, it's very short. All the same, Whitman hesitated. Do you figure out, do you figure out Wagner to be a force making for democracy or the opposite, he asked. His longtime friend, William Douglas O'Connor argued for the former. O'Connor swears to the democracy, swears to it with a big oath. Others have said to me that Wagner's art was distinctly the art of a caste for the few, what am I to believe? Music for all, question mark? Or like he's saying, like, is it really music of the democracy or, or not? You know, I mean, at the time, at, there are different, very different stages of um, history in each country where things were normal. There were things that were illegal and there was a way of going about things that it wasn't necessarily right, but at the time it was legal. You know, at some points, African Americans didn't have the right to vote or to own land or anything like that. Same for women, didn't have the right to vote, all these things. That was normal. And so it was just, I think that question was kind of posed of is this music that is trying to encapsulate the new of that truly all for one for or all for one, one for all, this music of everyone, everything. Or is it really still just music of a few? I think in its inception, um, it was for, well, you know, I think the stories that he used is for the few. It's for um, German people, like a, a true born German. But I think and a whole, the music is for everyone to listen to. So the story in itself is for the few, 
but the overall actual production itself is made for everyone to hear, everyone to listen to, everyone to gain an opinion on. See, I see where you're coming from. I do. But for me, mythology is something everybody can grab onto. So I feel like that is for the all, like the stories. But I feel like listening to it, he is aiming it at intellectuals to really grasp of what is coming from. And that's why people like Hitler required his generals to go listen to it. And that's why people like W.E.B. Du Bois said, if you cannot listen to this and gain something, are you really thinking about it? Like for, at least for me, when I was growing up, I've always known about mythology, whether it be Greek, Norse, because I was just a big history person. And this might just be me, but mythology is something I've always been able to grab onto. Now, if I was that age and listened to his chromaticism and his elongating of everything, I don't think I would have been able to understand it. So I feel like at the t like now, it is music for all. When it was like written, you can hold on to the stories, but the music part of it, like especially lower middle class and everybody, they probably would have been like. Huh? That's pretty, yeah. Like yeah, the pretty, the basis. And so, like, I can, I fully like as you were saying it. My development of my idea came. I was like, I really get where he's coming from, but in my head, the wheels aren't turning that way. I think what what you're saying that he's saying is that basically, and what I'm taking away from it is that Wagner may not have made it like it wasn't music for all when he created it but we have made it into music for all and also i think the specific mythology that he uses is definitely more selective it is to tell a selective story now greek mythology north all of that like yes that is for everyone but he chose select tales to tell lol yeah um, that is very selective that only in higher intellectual can put the pieces of like, oh, you're saying this rather than I'm saying, let's just take Zeus and every other one's like, oh, okay, it's Zeus, yada, 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 easy, got that. But he takes specific things to jog, your, to jog you to think something. So that's why I mean like the story itself, but the production was forever. I mean, anyone could have, paid the ticket to come and yeah. watch operas, they might not would have got what in the world is going on, but they at least would have heard, you know, the sounds, the the extraness of it all. I think you putting it that way. I do like his intent behind it was very Germanic. Mm -hmm. um, but the way we view it today, it's all about where you view it. And that's the, all of history. It's all about where and how you view it and what mind state you're in. I would like to call that relative oh. and i think that is a better place than any to kind of end today's episode on and lastly we're going to continue this um lauren what's on your iphone am i listening to you right now let's go with classical today what was the last classical thing you listened to Ooh, or chambers like anything that is mainly Ooh. instrumental it was Adagio from Spartacus, actually. 
Ooh, some uh, catch a catch a tur. Catchaturian. It was some Catchaturian. I don't know. I was in a mood one day that I was like, I really want to hear something that like makes me sad but happy sad. Like remembering a war where you lost a friend, but it was an amazing war. Something like that. You know what I mean? You want me Spartacus? Hello. But yeah, no. I. I mean, it was. It was a. It's a bop. If you have not. If you want to go like kind of cry a little bit, go listen to Adagio from Spartacus. Okay. She catch your attention. She catch a turning your attention. <laughs> Anthony, what you what you listening to on your iPhone? Um, so uh, the last costume thing I listened to was called Manyesu Bach für Zelenbe, which is a Bach. I know I sound real German, <laughs> but it's actually a Bach um, chorale. It's very. Oh, Anthony, funny. listening to Bach. Shut up. Um, <laughs> uh, it is Bach, but it is uh, for wind ensemble. And it is very, it's in a minor mode. It's very dark oh. and long because it's literally saying like, my Jesus, uh, something about, lo- it's like longing basically. So it's like, oh, geez. And of course, uh, my favorite recording is with H. Robert Reynolds conducting because you know, he will always make something just long and luscious like so that's the last thing that i was listening to and by complete surprise i'm actually listening to a piece that was written in the last 30 years <sighs> compared to y'all i'm usually like the bach the renaissance the medieval person but i'm actually listening to homage jfk by david sampson great brass ensemble piece it like it's really it's different i've been like on this like past 30 40 years kick and i'm like been loving it for the past 23 two to three weeks i've been on this past like only listening to very contemporary modern music because in my head i had this realization at 4 a.m while i was on tiktok i was like we need to be pushing music today yeah pushing dead composers or waiting for these people to die first of all none of y'all listen to him because first of all i i've had argument after argument after argument i was waiting for this with michael about new music and the contemporary music of how we need to really care about the composers now and you know what i got told for four years of my life Oh, it's not the same as Bach, as Mutterverde, as I'm like, excuse me. And now he wants to get on this platform and be like, "Oh, I'm for contemporary music." Get out. Get- exposed. Uh, I ain't exposed because I am right. It is not the same. It does not evoke the same emotions, but it pulls out different colors we've never heard, and we should push farther. Now, keep playing the war horses, y'all. If y'all can't play no box fugue, I don't need y'all here. I don't want y'all playing the music of today. Ain't nobody want to be playing a box fugue. Next, goodbye. Okay. On that note, uh, yes, friendship, <laughs> love. Um, <laughs> we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Um, let us know what you think about all the conversations we had. Please join in on the conversations with us. Um, leave comments on the videos, all those nice things. But Other than that, we just uh, wish you guys a safe and happy week, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening and being a part of our conversation. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 
We'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode, so leave us a comment or review. See you next time. 